Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to another election special episode here. I guess this would be episode number four of this election series. I'm trying to gather together uh, voices that I respect, that uh, I think have a lot to say about the rapidly shifting political landscape that we're facing here. Because now that now that Donald Trump has allegedly won an election, which I dispute, but we'll talk about that perhaps a little later, uh, now that he has allegedly won an election and that he is a so-called president of this country uh, or president-elect, I think that we need to take stock of the situation. I think we need to really dig into a lot of different facets of this story, and uh, I know uh, almost no one better qualified to do that than my good friend Tony Montero. He is uh, an expert on many issues, including, uh, uh, well, W.E.B. Du Bois for one, including black radical, the black radical tradition, black politics in the United States, and a whole host of other issues. Uh, Tony Montero. Montero, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be with you. So um, we were talking before we started recording about a couple of different issues, but before we get into some of the specifics, I do want to just ask you a very broad question. It's pretty much the same question I've been asking to everyone who I've had on to talk about the election. But uh, so, Tony, what are your initial impressions? How do you how do you read what's transpired over the last uh, five six days or so? And uh, so, give us give us your general response to what we've seen happen. Well, it's uh, you'd have to say it's a contradictory moment in American history. It uh, is analogous to the eighteen sixty election. Uh, a nation divided, uh, a, an establishment uh, brought down, uh, a new regime uh, set to replace it, which itself is ill-defined, uh, and the old uh, regime now fighting back uh, to delegitimate uh, the new uh, and uh, Having said all of that, in the broadest terms, uh, we are not certain how the class and race forces will configure themselves going forward. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, it is clear that this election shocked uh, the neoliberal, neocon, Wall Street, Pentagon axis. They did not see how they could have lost this election, given all that they had going for their money, the mass corporate media, uh, uh, all of the, uh, uh, most of the dominant uh, political forces, and a candidate in Donald Trump who had attacked and literally decimated uh, the party whose ticket he was running upon. Uh, there was no way they could lose, they thought. But then they suffer this ignominious defeat. Uh, and so what do they do? Do they go quietly into the night? Or do they try to assemble forces uh, 
that were both in their uh, coalition and outside of it among the popular masses to fight back. Uh, this, to me, if you were to ask me what I would predict going forward, what I see is civil unrest uh, approximating something like civil war in the United States. Um, okay, let's expand on that. Are you are you suggesting that the protests ongoing that are um, uh, anti-Trump protests, are you suggesting that that is being uh, entirely manipulated by the establishment? Is this is this the um, you know the the narrative of the handiwork of George Soros, or are you suggesting something deeper and 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 broader than that? I'm trying to get a read on what you mean by uh, assembling mm -hmm. their forces. Well, uh, in part, I'm not. I, I wouldn't put George Soros' name all over it, but I'm certain he is in it. Uh, but clearly, um, the neoliberal, neocon, Wall Street, Pentagon. Uh, mass corporate media uh, collection of forces are not going quietly into the night. Uh, so uh, I, I would say that, of course, uh, there are legitimate uh, anxieties uh, uh, at the grassroots level. Uh, interestingly, uh, not coming from the working class as much as from urban uh educated, upwardly mobile, mainly petty bourgeois uh, elements uh, who, who not only uh, were shocked by the outcome, but do not know where to go if the politics of the country are not based upon uh, identity politics. So they're without an, they're without an ideological framework uh, to understand the world, and I think uh, they are being driven by fears and anxieties about the future. They don't have a plan going forward uh, and hence are easily manipulated. Uh, you know, I'm reading the New York Times and when the New York Times becomes a kind of um, mobilizing information center uh, for this movement, one has to ask some questions. Well, there's no doubt that uh, the, the the liberal establishment and uh, you know certain sections of uh, capital are certainly um, wanting to mobilize against Trump. I think that there's no doubt about that. But um, you know, I've talked to people who are in these protests, both in 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 New York and in other places, and it is overwhelmingly overwhelmingly angry young people and especially young people of color you know this is this is what people are reporting in portland oregon uh historically very very white city where protests and protest movements are almost always white people protesting about petty bourgeois issues and or issues of war and peace and so forth and in portland oregon these are protests that were led predominantly by young people of color similarly in los angeles similarly in other parts of the country as well and um i think that the, and this is not what you were suggesting. In fact, I think you were mm -hmm. uh, going against this. But a lot of people online are uh, spreading this 
this meme that George Soros is the puppet master behind all of these protests, which is, in fact, the uh, same narrative that you get from the alt-right, from the Trump supporters, even before the election. They were saying that that was what was going to happen. Um, I Not only do I completely uh, reject that thesis, um, I think it is actually quite indicative of the ideological dissonance and uh, ideological confusion that people have about this issue. Uh, frankly, I find that narrative to be really um, demobilizing and delegitimizes legitimate protest. And and part of the reason I say this is because, and I want to get your take on this, you know, a lot of people are reflecting and saying, well, you know, where were these protesters the last eight years when Obama was murdering the Libyans and the Syrians and all of this other stuff? And uh, while obviously that's right, I mean, it's right to point that out. At the same time, I think it's also uh, entirely unfair. A lot of these people are very young. A lot of them were not of age when Obama came into office. And I will say this. Issues such as Libya and Syria and all of these other uh, international conflicts and other ones, they are complex. They require analysis. They require an examination of alternative sources. They require uh, 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 going against the dominant paradigm and so forth. You have to do work to get them, to understand them, to have the right position on them. In many in the alternative media didn't even have the right position on some of these issues. So that's that. But something like white supremacy, overt racism, a fear of outright uh, uh, fascism, these things are quite visceral. They intrude into people's everyday lives. They affect people in a very uh, uh, immediate way. And I think that's what spurs people to action much more quickly than something happening 10 thousand miles away. And so I find it a little bit inappropriate, in fact, highly inappropriate for people to say, well, these protests are bullshit because where were they the eight years of Obama? Well, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I agree with you. And, and just like you said, to understand the uh, global strategic questions requires study. I think to understand what is going on domestically requires study. And I do understand what you're saying. Young people are afraid, uh, and they should be afraid, uh, because their futures don't look bright under U.S. neoliberal capitalism and neocon warfare. Um, and so they should be afraid. But a movement, uh, especially a left movement, cannot base itself upon fear. There has to be strategic thinking. Uh, and certainly, uh, those who were around during Libya, during the Iraq war, and so on, uh, should be helping, to, helping the movement to think through this stage of crisis. Yep. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Oh, I agree. And, um, yeah, and, and, and I agree with you that conspiracy theories and thinking are not a substitute for strategic, tactical thinking. Uh, again, uh, we might be entering a period where the country is ungovernable, not merely because of these demonstrations that we're seeing in the wake of the Trump victory, but what will come afterwards. Uh, for example, uh, people talk about the Republicans controlling the White House and both 
houses of Congress. Well, I would say we have to have a more nuanced view of this. Uh, are they all Republicans, and are all the so-called Republicans on the same page? And what occurs if the Trump presidency is delegitimized, uh, which you know is a scenario of the neoliberal uh, elite? Uh, suppose he can't govern. Then where does the center of government shift to? Well maybe to the House, maybe to the Senate, maybe to a bipartisan coalition that upholds the old neoliberal uh, framework and neocon framework. Now, I think with all of, and you say the, uh, the geostrategic questions are very difficult to understand, but at another level, the questions of war and peace are not that difficult. It was clear that the forces of war had assembled under the Hillary Clinton tent. We avoided, at least for the time being, the bullet of war with Russia. Can I interject? Had, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Let me just, let me just make my last point. Then yep. I'll, you know, had Hillary won, one could uh, say that the probabilities of speeding up a confrontation with Russia and with Putin over a whole number of issues. That was the whole uh, thing of this neo-McCarthyite claim that the Russians were manipulating our election against Hillary Clinton. I mean, that was creating an atmosphere of war. So I think uh, these are some of the questions that are on the table going forward. Well, I, I agree partially because, of course, I was also mm -hmm. very adamant about uh, what Hillary Clinton represented, the danger that Hillary Clinton oh, yeah. represented. I wrote God knows how many pieces on that subject. Um, so I agree on that point, but I disagree with you, or I, rather I would, I would pose a counterpoint on a number of uh, oh. other issues. Number one. The notion that the military industrial complex was united against Donald Trump, I think, is false. If you look, if you look carefully, I wrote a piece uh, March 30th, 2016. So that's more than eight months ago, or actually eight months ago. Okay, I wrote. Uh, it was entitled "President Trump: U.S. War Machine Rolls On," and that was in the wake of him releasing the list of names that were his uh, advisors and the people who were close to him, who were giving him his talking points. And this was a rogues gallery of neocons. This was Walid Fares. These was people from the Bush administration, from the right wing think tanks. Uh, he he made claims about sending thirty thousand U.S. troops into Iraq and Syria to fight against ISIS and a whole host of other issues. So. While there was definitely a uh, a mobilization of a lot of those military industrial complex forces behind Hillary Clinton, it was not exclusively behind her, and that's what I would that's what I would urge people to consider that those elements always hedge their bets and they play both sides of the game, and they had their forces inside of Trump's uh, camp, and that's what you're seeing right now when you hear names like John Bolton and James Woolsey, and Mike Flynn, and people like this being thrown around, and, and Rudy Giuliani, for God's sake, and all of these mm. other people being named as, as, as the people who are going to be in leadership positions in the Trump administration, these are not people who are anti-neocon ideology, and it, many of them are the biggest neocon warmongers there are. John Bolton has uh, penned a piece in the New York Times in November, uh, last November, arguing for the dismemberment of Syria, and the creation of a Sunni state between Syria and Iraq.
Iraq, which would essentially be an Islamic state, quote-unquote ISIS state. Okay, We're talking about, I, I think, some confusion here among people on the left as to what the true nature of the Trump administration is going to be. If you think it's going to be something different from what the neocons were offering, I think people are in for a rude awakening. Uh, yes, I, I hear you, and, and you're talking about the second and third tier uh, hangers-on to the neocons, uh, but the top tier of neocons, especially from the Bush uh, administrations, um, are, are, are with the Hillary Clinton in the Hillary Clinton big tent, and that was the dramatic and extraordinary uh, reconfiguring of things. Um, I don't think there's much of a question that the dominance of ruling class uh, elements uh, were in the uh, Clinton big tent. I mean, that tent was so big that one could barely find space for black people, Latinos, and the labor movement, yep. which had been the traditional uh, uh, driving force at the mass grassroots level of Democratic presidential campaigns. And that probably accounts uh, for some of the losses uh, that, the, that Clinton uh, 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 experienced in like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio, uh, because there was, there was hardly any room in that big tent for the traditional base of the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, the space had been taken up by Wall Street and the top tier of the uh, neocons. But that having been said, uh, what I think we're looking at, Eric, and this is where we have to calculate uh, and, um, uh, how would you say, measure the correlation of forces both within the ruling class and outside of it. Uh, and what I would argue is that the forces around Clinton have a political interest in destabilizing a Trump presidency. Uh, they thought they had it. They thought there would be at least four more years, if not eight more years, of Bush-Obama, which meant austerity and war. They thought that was in the bag. But somehow they got upset on the way to the party. And now... They have to find a way to fight back. And it's not just when you talk about the Clinton big tent, you know, you can't leave out of it people like Paul Ryan and Lindsey Graham and the Bushes and uh, so on and so forth. The top tier of the Republican Party. So we have not seen in our lifetimes such a united front of the dominant elements of the American ruling class as we saw in this election. Now, was it Trump that they feared, or was it the forces below Trump, the forces that gave him the election in the industrial, former industrial, now Rust Belt state? Michigan had not gone Republican in 28 years. Pennsylvania had not gone Republican in 28 years. Now, a lot of people say this is a white lash, that this is white identity politics opposing multicultural, multiracial identity politics. But then how do you explain in 
counties like Warren County in Michigan or counties in Pennsylvania that are predominantly white who went for Obama in 2012, some in 2008 and 2012, shifting to Trump. How do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that, um, that uh, Trump won Pennsylvania and won in places that he was not expected to win, like Scranton, Pennsylvania, like Erie, Pennsylvania? Scranton is the hometown of, uh, of Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden. I think there is something happening below all of this. Trump is the broken uh, vessel that expressed something to people who had been left out, left behind, unheard, uh, erased from social discourse. He touched something and expressed something that they voted for. Now, does that mean that, the, that, that Trump gets a buy from even these people? Because they're going to hold him accountable to a lot of stuff. So I, I, I just challenge this whole white lash idea, this whole idea that everybody that voted for Trump are so dumb that it makes his uh, election illegitimate, that, uh, that they are that they are essentially led by fascists and, and racists and that type of thing. I reject that broad brush, which I consider to be a smear. Well, I would say I would say a couple of things. Number one, um, I agree with you that uh, the notion that the you know that this is all due to white lash or whatever that is uh, to mm. be rejected yeah. partially. Um, I, I mean, there is an element of truth in that, of course, but um, I think that that is too simplistic of an uh, explanation. In answer to your question, though, and I, I have to be brutally honest here. Um, first of all, mm -hmm. listeners, I didn't talk to Tony about this beforehand, so I'm kind of bringing it up without giving him a chance yeah. to prepare anything yeah. here. So. I, you know, Tony, don't feel like you have to, you know, speak on this mm -hmm. if you don't feel qualified or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in answer to your question, how do you explain that flip in a lot of those in a lot of those counties in Pennsylvania, in Michigan? I am arguing, and I'm coming out with a piece in in, mm -hmm. in a matter of a day mm -hmm. or two. I am arguing that the election was stolen, just like the election in 2000 was stolen, and the data shows mm. quite clearly, quite clearly, especially in the following states: North Carolina. Pennsylvania and Florida and uh, Ohio, and I'm blanking on what the other one was, but those states, mm -hmm. the M Michigan, the, maybe, the, well, Michigan was a little bit closer, but Michigan as well, the discrepancy between the exit poll data and the final vote tally is large enough where if it happened in another country, the United States would reject the results of the election because of vote fraud. It is uh, experts on the subject say anything beyond 2% discrepancy between exit poll data and final vote tallies are questionable and raise suspicion and need to be investigated. In North Carolina, it was almost a 6% discrepancy. In Pennsylvania, 5.5%. In Florida, more than 2.5%. So in these key states that Trump won, the discrepancy is significant, statistically significant, and needs to be investigated because those of us who remember 2000 and what happened around that election and how that election 
election was stolen and everything that happened after that need to be vigilant on this question right now because when you say the illegitimacy of the Trump administration it the illegitimacy doesn't come from protesting on the street and from saying that the people who voted for him are ignorant redneck hillbilly scum the illegitimacy comes from being able to prove that this election was stolen and I believe we can well, I, I don't know about North Carolina, but I do know about Pennsylvania. Uh, and what has what has been the Democratic Party's strategy in Pennsylvania going back 30 years is that you win big in Philadelphia, especially, and you win in Pittsburgh, but really Philadelphia can carry the state. Uh, now, in 2012, uh, Barack Obama came out of Philadelphia with a 492,000 vote majority over the Republicans. In uh, 2016, Clinton came out with a 455,000 vote uh, majority over the Republicans. And I think every, and I, I don't think the vote was stolen in Philadelphia for Trump. Uh, I think what what we saw was a, uh, a lesser voter turnout, especially among blacks, uh, and, uh, and, and, and then a shift of some previous Democratic voters to Trump. Uh, that, that explains Philadelphia, that explains Pennsylvania, and that explains the narrow victory that he won in Pennsylvania. Um, now, We'd have to look at Wisconsin, I, I guess Ohio once again. Well, uh, let me, these were, Tony, let me just and, say. And so and, I would say, let me, let me just say yeah. one thing about Ohio. You know, again, we have to look, and we have not looked carefully enough at the black vote. This is very significant. First of all, black voters uh, were not telling pollsters and people who survey voters after they vote, they don't tell them the truth all the time for various reasons. Uh, it was expected that there would be this huge black voter turnout that would trump, pardon the pun, would trump the white vote. There would be a larger or a, an equivalent black turnout to the white turnout. Uh, it did not happen. And there are reasons it didn't happen in these big cities, especially. And I think we have to look at that. I agree. Uh, in some ways, it is the black vote that pulled the rug on the Clinton campaign. And the question we have to ask, given all of this positive stuff, this positive polling numbers for Barack Obama, why did 13% of black men vote for Trump. Yes. Why did Trump get a larger part, although small, but a larger part of the black vote than Mitt Romney got? What is going on here? And that's the question I would put before you. And I think that those questions are as significant as the ones that you raised about a stolen vote. Well, I think that I, I, I agree with you. I just had Bob Petrakis on this show. I just recorded an interview with him. Yep. That'll be coming out here mm -hmm. in a day or so. Uh, he is 
probably the leading expert on this subject in the United mm -hmm. States. You know, he's filed multiple lawsuits under RICO statutes in Ohio. Sure. Uh, and, you know, he's in, he lives in Columbus. You know, he knows Ohio very well. He said, oh, he said point blank that there's no doubt that uh, not only was there vote stealing, but vote suppression in the black communities, uh, especially in in Ohio, and that he witnessed it for he witnessed it and he knows it and he was potentially going to file a lawsuit over it, especially having to do with the security measures on those machines. Now, I don't want to go too deep into all of this because I know that's not necessarily your area of expertise, but I do want to say that when you look at the numbers, okay, I asked Bob straight up, I said, what about the hidden Trump votes? Those people who won't admit openly that they voted for Trump mm -hmm. and whatever. And he said that is mostly, mostly relevant to opinion polling before the election. Exit polling is something very different, and the exit pollsters know perfectly how to run exit polls and how to prevent the skewing of those numbers. He said, look at the primaries. The exit pollsters got every single primary correct for Trump, 100% right. OK, uh, if you look at the numbers in Ohio, for example, they're striking in Ohio. The exit poll was negative one percent. That means a one tenth of one percent favoring Trump. Well, that's easily within the margin of error. The final vote tally, mm -hmm. eight point six percent for Trump. OK, that's a swing. That's a swing of eight point seven or sorry, eight point five percent. OK, that is huge. Somebody needs to be in Ohio asking the question, how did that swing happen? How do you have such a large discrepancy where we know the Carter Center and the United States in general would never accept that in another country as valid? They would say vote fraud immediately. So I bring all of this up to say that this question of legitimacy and delegitimizing the Trump administration, that has to happen on multiple fronts. And it's not simply from social movements. We have to be willing and courageous enough to ask the question, was this election stolen? Now, the secondary question that you're raising is an important one, having to do with demographics and having to do with a lot of these shifts. And I understand all of those issues perfectly, but I think it needs to be said that even in those uh, 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 precincts and counties where you had predominantly black voters, while the turnout may have been lower, it still remains a question how many of those votes that were registered for Trump in those areas were actually Trump votes. See, I want to I want to know the data before I draw the conclusion that there was this mass uh, exodus away from Clinton and to Trump among black voters. I don't know that that's true. Matter of fact, I would say that that's probably false. Well, <laughs> that's you could say that. Um, but, you know, these elections, you know, the presidential elections are, are state by state elections. And uh, I don't know Ohio, but I do have a better sense of Pennsylvania, and certainly I do know Philadelphia. Uh, and, you know, for black voters, uh, the appeal of uh, Barack Obama was not what it was in 2012 or 2008. Of course. Yeah. And that has to do with their worsening economic condition. Yeah. And I, I would say added to that, and this this kind of, parallels what, what went on among organized labor and, and the way they voted. And, you know, uh, the point that I'm making is this, that uh, why, what is the incentive 
to vote for four more years of Barack Obama if you live in Philadelphia, the poorest of the ten, top ten largest cities in the United States, uh, where there is effectively no real public education, where there is no public recreation, uh, what, what is the incentive uh, to vote for Barack Obama, the commander-in-chief, or the commander of the largest uh, deportation in the history of the United States. Uh, you see, there is a kind of cognitive dissonance going on here. You know, the image of Clinton and Obama as liberal, but the reality of them as the opposite. When you get 50% of organized workers voting against their leadership, that represents an insurgency, if not an insurrection, within the ranks of labor. I know a little bit about black Philadelphia. I know the sense of despair and shock of the black political and religious and intellectual leadership in this city when black folk didn't follow their orders. I think that is, uh, that is the story going forward that we have to understand what is happening among ordinary working people and poor people in this country when it's estimated that upwards of 80% of the people of this country live in one or another stage of precarity. Why would they vote for Clinton? Why would they vote at all? No, I agree. I, I totally, I yeah. to, I totally so, agree with that. So you talk about, so if we want to talk about voter suppression, let's talk about the policies of neoliberalism. Let us talk about the fraud that has been perpetrated on ordinary, and I'm talking Philadelphia now, ordinary black people by a political leadership that talks one way on election day, and then for the rest of the time, they give the city over to gentrifiers. And and, and big corporations that don't pay taxes in this town and the public schools collapse. I mean, there is this, I mean, we have to at some point say that people will not accept the fraud. They'll either withdraw from the system and, and you can call it voter suppression if you want, or they will uh, actively go with the outsider against the insiders as they perceive it. Well, I okay, I understand all of that and I agree with it. I agree uh, there is no reason to be supporting Democrats uh, if you're if you're yeah. black or Hispanic or anything. There's no reason to support the neoliberal consensus. All of that I agree with, but there's there you're talking about And, and I would just I add think, I would just add uh, uh, Eric if you're white and poor. Yeah, if and you're white erased, and poor as well, yes. And, and erase, and, and erase. Here's the further humiliation. Erase from the national discourse. Yes. The national political discourse. You understand where I'm coming yes, from? Yes, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't want to get into an apples mm -hmm. and oranges issue here. Yes, I agree with all of that, but when I say voter suppression, mm -hmm. I mean active purging of voters and active prevention of the registering of their votes. 
Uh, yes, of course, there is a suppression, you know, in the abstract sense where people feel that they're left out, where people don't want to participate, where people feel like this is, uh, you know, yet another yet another exercise in futility or whatever. All of that is true. But when I'm saying voter suppression, I'm talking about the kind of active voter suppression that we saw in the primaries against Bernie Sanders, for example, or in the general election as well. What you saw in North Carolina, the purging of hundreds of thousands of voters from the rolls. I mean, these things I think are significant issues, especially when you look at the final vote final vote numbers and you see percentage points uh, flipping, deciding these key states that brought Trump into the White House. So, you know, this question is a large one, and I think one that really needs to be addressed. And while we can talk all we want about the social forces at play, and I understand all of that, I moved out of New York City into, uh, uh, you know, an area about an hour plus outside of the city that is Trump territory. This is red. This is a red county, okay? I know what a lot of these people are talking about, what they feel, what they fear, and so forth. I have some sense of that. But when we talk about the suppression of votes and the fraud that took place, I think this needs to be spoken about openly and plainly because the illegitimacy, well, the mm -hmm. illegitimacy of this administration is going to be very, very significant. And I want to take a break here uh, and we'll pick up from that point. But I'm going to ask you another question on the other side of the break that has to do with the future, because the future, I think, is yeah. really critical here. But anyway, let's just take yeah. a quick break on the other side of the break continue the conversation with uh, tony montero you're listening to counterpunch radio we'll be right back you're asking what is socialism and what it really means it's equal rights for every man regardless of his strength so don't let no one fool you, Joshua said. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said. No man are better than none. Socialism is love between man and man. Socialism is love for your brother. Socialism is linking hearts and ends. Would you believe me? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is sharing with your sister. Socialism is Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about sufferer at all Joshua said One man have too many While too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting. Socialism is Socialism is love 
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Tony Montero. We're talking about uh, Trump and the election and uh, all issues related to that. Now, before the break, Tony, uh, you know, we were we were discussing a few different uh, dynamics at play here. Not only the 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 vote fraud and stuff that I brought up, which I think is a huge issue that I am desperately going to try to put onto the radar uh, in the discourse here in the in the coming weeks. Uh, but besides that, also the social dynamics at play and a lot of other a lot of other factors. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit. Well, actually, before we switch gears, if you wanted to say something on that point, uh, go ahead. And then I want to shift gears a little bit. Well, I, I would just say, um, you know, let's think about uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Was there vote suppression in Philadelphia? I would say no. And um, I don't know about other places like in the South. Uh, even if there was voter suppression in the South, uh, most of the Southern states would have gone Republican anyway. Uh, they're red states. Uh, perhaps North, North Carolina, Carolina, you would yep. have to look at it. North yeah, Carolina would have to look one. at it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, states that in 28 years had never gone Republican, suddenly flipped. We have to, and these are industrial states. These are deindustrialized states. Uh, these are states hit hard by NAFTA and the proposed TPP. Uh, so I think I think there are correlations uh, between uh, the flipping of the Rust Belt states and the economic uh, crisis and stagnation experienced mm-hmm. by the working class in general. I do want to shift gears a little bit because I want to ask you this question. This is something that is really keeping me up at night right now. Okay. We have a President Trump, okay, or a President elect Trump. We'll soon have a President mm-hmm. Trump. What happens if, as I believe is quite likely, that Trump is impeached? Because what's going to happen is that. If we believe, and as I do, that much of the establishment doesn't want Trump in the White House and fears what might happen with Trump in the White House, I don't think they have any reservations or fears whatsoever about President Pence. I think President Pence is a Christian fascist. His views from everything from uh, homosexual conversion therapy to abortion issues and social issues, but also his economic austerity policies. This guy doesn't give a crap about white workers. He's perfectly happy following the neoliberal consensus. That's what he's done his entire career. I think it's a very real possibility that they might just get rid of Trump anyway and end up with a President Mm -hmm. Pence. And so I want to ask you, A... What do you – well, do you believe that that scenario is a uh, potential reality and that we need to be considering it and preparing for it? And B, what do you think a President Pence administration would look like? Forget Trump. What would Pence and all of these other hangers-on that would be in that administration, what would that look like in your mind? Well, let me just say first that I think that all things are possible multiple potentialities in this situation. Um, Impeachment, assassination, uh, ungovernability uh, of the country, uh, martial law, all things are possible because we are in one of those unique moments that only 
has as an analog uh, the 1860 election and its aftermath. Um, I, I cannot, I mean, you know, a Trump uh, presidency uh, would be like a Johnson presidency, an Andrew Johnson presidency after the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, it would be a retrenchment of the old regime and of the old order. Uh, and, a, and it would, be, uh, would, would govern in the name of stability and bipartisan cooperation, which would mean a renewed attack upon working people, precarity and poverty and war abroad. I think the key thing that we have to understand is that uh, much of, of the subtext of the 2016 campaign was the U.S. empire and the military defense of that empire. Uh, and this meant the TPP, this meant uh, no-fly zone in, uh, in Syria, this, this meant uh, bolstering militarily and financially the regime, the, the coup regime in, uh, in the Ukraine, and this meant uh, beefing up NATO forces all around Russia. Uh, now, Trump, knowingly or not, constituted a disruption. We can dispute how much of a disruption, whether these were just words to get elected or not, but it was perceived as him being, in effect, an ally of Putin and thus a existential or strategic enemy of American empire, of the American nation. I'll put that again. Trump, along with Putin and, of course, uh, Julian Assange, were seen as strategic threats to the nation, as enemies of the American nation. And that argument will continue now take let's put the and i don't want to talk too long and so you cut me off when if i do uh eric put that alongside of the other uh part of the narrative geostrategically he's with putin and assad just and thus a threat to national security but then on the other side he's an alleged fascist racist xenophobe homophobe Islamophobe, uh, and the people that voted for him are trash and ignorant. So you get the two sides of this narrative, a fascist at home and a national security risk abroad. Uh, I think this is tender for the destabilization and the takedown of what I still believe was a fair election, at least the way they're conducted in the United States. Uh, I think the country under these circumstances could drift into ungovernability of uh, prolonged social unrest and perhaps what would look like civil, domestic civil war along class lines. 
Okay, so you're talking about ungovernability. You're talking about civil unrest and civil conflict. Now let's 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 consider very very quickly what that actually would look like under a Trump administration. You have an administration that came in promising quote unquote law and order, law and order, and you also mm-hmm. have, and I think this is indisputable if you talk to people and 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 have some uh, you know. Uh, finger on the pulse, so as it were, among the police and law enforcement and military in the United States, they were uh, mostly, if not entirely, backing Trump. Trump had the support of a major swath, maybe not the top brass. The top brass, the generals and stuff, for the most part, were backing Hillary as the establishment uh, warmonger that she was. Uh, But the rank and file, and especially the rank and file of the police, were clearly pro-Trump. Now, what does that mean when Trump is president, you have unrest on the streets? What is that going to look like? What is that going to look like in the uh, communities of color, the marginalized communities, those communities where you're going to have demonstrations, you're going to have protests, and you're going to have mostly white police officers who think that this is an assault on their president, on their government, I think this is a recipe for a major escalation in police murder, a major escalation in the kind of violence and brutality that we have seen uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesting against and many other social uh, uh, justice groups and so forth. In other words, you're going to see a significant escalation in violence against the most oppressed communities. And we, meaning the left, need to be prepared for that and need to understand that threat and need to understand that there are a lot of people for whom that is going to be an existential threat. This is not some, you know, this is not, uh, you know, political point scoring. We have very vulnerable people who are going to be seeing this coming to their towns, their backyards. We saw it in Louisiana. We saw it in Ferguson. We saw it in Baltimore. We've seen it all over the place. Get ready for that on steroids. And and yes, and if it does happen like you suggest, we can thank uh, Barack Obama, uh, the most dramatic militarization of local police forces, uh, 2,400% uh, over what the Bush administration did, uh, the transfer of military hardware to local police under the Obama administration. See, this is why this claim of fascism uh, a word that I think we need to take out of our political lexicon for the time being because it means everything and thus nothing. Uh, The claim that we have uh, moved into fascism with the election of Trump, but we were in a liberal democracy under Obama and, uh, and so on, is a fallacy that is not just logically fallacious, but it's empirically unverifiable. When you talk about the militarization of the police, when you talk about the uh, nuclear modernization, when you talk about um, uh, the national security state and the use of uh, federal laws, treason laws, to quiet and shut down uh, whistleblowers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I don't think we have ever existed under such a regime of terror and uh, spying and really neo-McCarthyism. I mean, what has happened uh, 
in under Democrats and Republicans, so-called liberals and uh, part of the neoliberal and, and so on uh, consensus. What has happened uh, to state with the uses of state power would make Hitler and the Nazis uh, uh, look on in wonder at what we have done. This is 1984 on steroids. I agree. The whole, yeah, you see. So but, the question is, have we, wait, let me just, oh, I'll end right here. Have we made a qualitative shift towards fascism in 2016? Or was that shift made earlier? Have the institutions of repression and, and murder and police power already been established? And have they not already been operative in the lives of, as you call us, marginalized communities? Well, I agree, of course. I mean, oh, this is what mm -hmm. this is what we've been crusading against the last eight years, the last sixteen years. Absolutely. You know, uh, I agree, mm -hmm. of course, and I've said many times before uh, that the infrastructure of the police state is uh, already built out, and it's been built out over a couple of decades, and that infrastructure, that police state, is already there. But the police state, that the 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 flip. The flip still needs to be made. The switch needs to be flipped. It needs to be turned on in its full repression. Full repression. Okay, the capacity of this police state we've only scratched the surface of. It can go much, much deeper and much, much more uh, all-encompassing. And I think that that is uh, indeed the direction that we are headed. So while I agree that Obama deserves a significant amount of the blame for all of this, of course, because Obama is the warmongering, exploiting neo liberal uh president that he is obviously george bush as, as george does, bush as, 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 as does bill clinton as does bill clinton I mean, who is instrumental I mean, and, and the, in creating the, the mass incarceration state the prison and, industrial and, complex and, that's right and the ideological propaganda framework for criminalizing black and brown and poor people and and we agree on every single one of those points i agree 100 mm percent -hmm. on all of that where I'm going to where I'm going to take issue though is in the idea mm -hmm. that somehow what we're about to witness, what's about to unfold to come in the coming years, is not going to be qualitatively different. I think it will be, and I think that we need to be prepared for that because what is about to come down the pike is something very very ugly. If you look at the indicators economically, if you look at the indicators socially, if you look at the way in which this is playing out, I. I don't see any way that this doesn't get go you know be what Hunter Thompson famously wrote you know from bad to worse to rotten and there's and it's more of the same you know and yeah. that trajectory yeah. from bad to worse to rotten we need to be aware of and there are going to be people especially you know some of my muslim friends some of my hispanic friends people like that i'm not talking identity politics that's not who i am that's not what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is recognizing who are the allies and who are the enemies and taking the correct position and taking the correct side. And we need to be aware that there is a lot of rage, violent rage in this country that's about to be fully expressed. Uh, we see already uh, a, a tremendous spike in hate crimes. We see the Confederate flag being flown much more openly in the last few days. Now, maybe that's temporary. Maybe that's just blowing off steam. I don't know. But these are what this is what's happening. 
Okay, just as in Britain, you saw a spike in anti-immigrant violence after Brexit because certain forces take these results to embolden their positions, and we can't be blind to that, and we can't just and, talk and here, about here, the anger here, here, against neoliberalism. Yes, but yes, you're right, and 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 I would underline your phrase certain forces, you know, and don't, as many are doing, smear the entire working class. I don't. With what, hold it, with what certain forces do. There are agent provocateurs who will operate in the name of multiple political causes out there today because I, they understand the, the nature of the political situation. It is an unsettled. We have not experienced this, even in the Great Depression, where the nation is, has been so divided, where the future, the political future of the nation and its governing class has been so uncertain. In other words, you asked about the future and you put it in the terms of Trump. I prefer to put it in terms of what will working people do? They, they, they acted in a way that we have never seen in our lifetimes in this election. They did things that no one thought they were capable of doing. They thought about political issues in ways that no one thought they could. Now, the next question is what is to come after that? I think we're in a period of ungovernability, whether it's total or not, I don't know. Even the calls for martial law need not come from Trump. They could come from a bipartisan coalition in the Congress, in the Senate, you know, that would be liberals and conservatives, as they call themselves. We just don't know. Uh, but I think it is clear. War is the enemy of democracy. It is the enemy of the poor. War is the enemy of reform. The candidate of war cannot at the same time claim to be the candidate of multiculturalism. Well, that was, that's, the, that's the opportunism. That's just the opportunism of Clinton and all of her criminal, uh, well, uh, you know, but, criminal but, coterie. But, yes, but that's not what. That's right. But, 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 but that's but not. Didn't, didn't we begin? Didn't we begin the discussion with the protests that are now going on? Yes. Because people are afraid. Yes. But Sometimes fear can be manufactured for political ends that the people who are expressing that fear don't even realize. No doubt, no doubt. But that no, no mm -hmm. doubt you can exploit you can exploit people's fears no yeah. matter which side of the pol uh, of the political spectrum, no matter what kind of a candidate and or you, what kind and of you, a and you can and you can manufacture uh, fear in order to exploit. Of course, you can. At the same time, you mm -hmm. cannot you cannot turn away. From actually existing material forces, you cannot turn away from the reality that is that is uh, in before you. We can sit here all we want. Uh, people at you know, uh, you're associated with uh, a number of the people at Black Agenda Report, as I am, that I consider friends and stuff. And we've been talking about uh, uh, the the Democrats and the liberals for a long time, and how they're deeply responsible for everything that has happened here. But 
there are no points to be scored at this on this. This isn't a game. Nobody here thinks this is a game. We all know that this is real. This is reality. And because we were right these eight years, these last 16 years, and much longer than that for those of those comrades who are older than me, you know, just because we were right all this time and just because we warned that something like this would ultimately happen, that there would be this mass upsurge, this mass backlash or whatever you want to call it, doesn't mean we then turn away at this moment from the things that we're supposed to be defending and supposed to be standing for. I don't believe for a second, and you could, you know, people could say I'm wrong or whatever. I don't believe for a second that Trump means anything uh, about, you know, an anti-war position or anything like that. I do believe that we are less likely to get into a, uh, a war with Russia in the near term right now because of this. So that's a plus. At the same time, when you say, but but you, when you say because of this, what is the this? Uh, well, because of Trump being elected, I think we are slightly, okay, all right. slightly less likely, right. slightly less likely okay. in the near term to go down that okay. route. But but, okay. but let, let's just interrogate. No 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 no, 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 hold on a second. Important. Let me finish. Okay. Let me finish okay. this okay. point. But we don't turn away from the other dangers that this poses. For instance, for instance. And nobody who listens to me and who knows my work would ever say that I'm anything but the most virulent enemy of Hillary Clinton. But we have to say, when Trump talks about jumpstarting coal and fracking, this is an existential threat to the climate. And this and, and thus an existential threat to people of color, as we know from Katrina, as we know in Africa, as we know in the South Pacific, in many other parts of the world, the change in the changing climate disproportionately impacts people of color. It always will, because they are the first line of the, uh, you know, as you called it, those in the most precarious states. OK, we have to keep that in mind. We also have to keep in mind what this means for the police state, for surveillance state, for all of these things with the kinds of people, like I said, Woolsey and Bolton and people like that in positions of power and Giuliani and Chris Christie and people like that. We can't turn away from this and say, well, you see, liberals gave this to us. So blame the liberals. Well, yes and no. Blame the liberals for under to understand how we got here, but attack this government and undermine it as much as possible, because number one, it's illegitimate. Number two, this is the vehicle of the oppression of the coming years. Mm-hmm. And and I just uh, you know I, and that's a that's a a real uh, a, a large group of issues. But I, I just wanted to go back to when you said because of this, and you said that because of this was because of the Trump election, the trigger hair of war with Russia, which uh, clearly could easily uh, move into a nuclear exchange, uh, which would be disastrous for humanity. Uh, as disastrous as the climate uh, disaster that we're living under. And you're absolutely right. Trump and anybody associated with him should be attacked on their position on coal and fracking, uh, as should Obama be attacked for his position on the uh, pipeline in uh, North Dakota. But I want to get back the question of war and great power confrontations. Uh, you see, I, I don't know whether you would agree with me, 
that once you go over to war and the ideology of war, all democratic bets are off the table. Uh, war with Russia requires the ideology that undermines democracy at home. Neo-McCarthyism outlaws dissent, outlaws uh, protest. So in the name of national security, and I think we have to be very clear that Clinton was not only the, president, the candidate of war, but the candidate of national security and a neo-McCarthyism. Uh, now, I would say at this stage, uh, you know, and, and here's, you know, kind of where you and I are, are debating and differing. Uh, where does the greatest danger come from or where did it come from in this election? I think that the greatest danger came from Clinton. I think the demonstrators in the street don't recognize or understand that. I think that the corporate media has not given up on stopping Trump and bringing to power some form of the Clinton Big Tent, whether that will be through Mike Pence, whether that will be through a marginalized, diminished Trump presidency, and thus power shifting to the Senate and the House of Representatives and a bipartisan so-called coalition. Uh, you just don't know. But I think, and again, I'll say this, I think the word Fascism needs to be taken out of the mouths of most people that are using it because it's only fascism when their side is not winning. It's not fascism when their side wins. I contend that the infrastructure and the institutions of repression that we could identify with fascism have been put in place since the Clinton administration. Uh, the other thing about it is that what is new was the belligerency and the willingness to confront a major power like Russia and China and to suggest, and this is coming from the liberal big tent, full spectrum war against China, Russia, yes. and possibly Iran. I wrote, I, I wrote, think you're very aware about all I that. wrote all of that. That's exactly what I wrote. That was, that I wrote it, uh, dozens of times in many articles published mm -hmm. on the subject. Uh, I, I wrote exactly that point. So I'm of course in agreement on that, but, and this is, I guess where we're differing here. I don't believe that just because now it's shifted in this way that we're going to see some kind of a qualitative shift in not only on that issue but on a number of issues most importantly and this is the we're we're already well over the time here but I just want to finish up this conversation <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. that that the infrastructure of the police state is all there okay but we have not yet had that trigger that triggering moment to really move into a full mobilization of the infrastructure of that police state. Now, to some degree, certain communities, particularly black communities in the poorest parts of America that live under what amounts to a military or quasi-military occupation by the police, they have some inkling of what that looks like but most of this country does not and the and the danger that we face now is that we cannot have an either or approach i said leading up to this election to oppose both trump 
and Clinton and to be prepared no matter which way this went to mobilize to bring them down no matter who won. And that was my position before. That remains my position now because I see them both as tremendous, tremendous dangers. And I think that now that we are facing it, now that this is reality, despite everything we could say, including challenging the results of the election, the reality is this is the incoming administration. This is the incoming government. And these are the tools that they're being handed by the liberals, by the Democrats. They are being handed those tools that they had in turn been handed by the Bush administration before them. And now, like I said, from bad to worse to rotten. We have to see this trajectory for what it is, and we have to be prepared for one other point, Tony, and this is going to be my last one, and then I want to give you the last word, okay? We have to be prepared for the inevitable, inevitable, and I say this again, inevitable betrayal by this incoming government. They will betray, if not all, then most of the promises that they have made, because that is what they do. That is how governing works in this country. That's what's going to happen, okay? Say maybe you don't think it will. I am, I am certain that that's what's going to happen, okay? When that happens, who will be scapegoated? Who will be blamed? When Trump can't build his wall, when Trump can't deliver on, on you know, ending free trade and neoliberalism and replacing it with something truly terrific, as he likes to say, okay, when that doesn't happen, where is the anger going to go? Where is it going to be channeled? Who is going to be in the crosshairs? These are obviously rhetorical questions because I think it's obvious. Mm -hmm. And we do have a parallel. You might not want to talk about the word fascism because, and I agree with you, most people using it don't really understand what the word really means. But I think I have a fair understanding of what the word means. And here's the issue. Historical parallels we have in Germany when the Germans lost the war, what, what led to the rise of a true fascist movement? It was the feeling that the people had been stabbed in the back, stabbed in the back and betrayed by certain forces inside of their country. In, in Germany, it was stabbed in the back by the communists, stabbed in the back by the Jews, which in many ways were synonymous in their minds, stabbed in the back by certain elements uh, of the liberal bourgeoisie in the country, stabbed in the back. That led to the rise of the Nazis. That feeling led to the rise of Hitler. Okay. Similarly, in this country, I would never say that Trump is Hitler. I would never say that we are witnessing the rise of, of, of our Hitler. No. What we are witnessing, though, is the preparation for a major, major betrayal, which will translate into a major upsurge of scapegoating and hate. And when that happens, you wait for the next political movement, the next political figure, the next one who will seize on that with all of these conditions, with the police state intact, with these reactionary politicians now in positions of leadership. Okay, that new reality, we need to be facing it and we need to be prepared for it and we need to be organizing and mobilizing ourselves to defend against those people who will be on the front lines and we know who that is. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and and, uh, and if uh, we have what, what you call fascism, uh, we can thank the liberals because it was, it was, it was the so-called liberals that uh, that gave us all of the instruments 
of state repression and the attack upon civil liberties and the neo-McCarthyism, the so-called liberals, the neoliberals, in fact. But I see other possibilities, uh, possibilities of a new resistance, a new unity, uh, a new left, a new left, a new consciousness, a new combativeness uh, that will come out of this uh, moment of crisis. Well, that's and what I'm talking crisis. about. Yes, that's exactly and, what and, I'm promoting. And, yes. And yes. And, and one thing, even if we want to use the 1930s as the analog, the difference is that uh, you have a different kind of world, a world that is increasingly rejecting the American uh, empire and its hegemony uh, from the Philippines to Turkey to South Korea to Russia and China uh, all over uh, Latin America. Uh, this is not the world of imperialist uh, domination and diktat. This is a world where there are alliances and forces, both state and non-state, that have the capacity to resist uh, American empire militarily, politically, and economically. But it's the so there's certain there's certain boundaries. There's certain boundaries to their power. I would also argue that they do not have absolute power in the United States. I think as we look forward to a period of growing class division, growing and growing class consciousness, which includes anti-race consciousness, um, there are also bright possibilities, not only the dark night that many people talk about, there are possibilities that are beyond the dark night, that go way beyond that. I agree with that. I will only say, and I, I, I did say I'd give you the last word, and I will, but I have to say one more thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> while, I, while, I, while I agree that you do see these global shifts, I don't necessarily agree that they are, by definition, positive. For instance, the anti, anti-American position in a place like France is the proto-fascist position. That is Le Pen. That is extreme nationalism, the National Front. They will be in the presidency in France next year. It's almost a done deal guarantee. They will have the presidency. Are they anti-American? Yes. Are they anti-minorities? You bet. Are they anti-African immigrants? You bet. Are they going to target those communities in France? You bet. So, while we do see these shifts uh, away from the total hegemony of the United States, especially in places in Europe, we do see that for sure. However, we can't simply accept that the character of that shift is necessarily by definition positive, nor can we say oh. that it deserves our support. If anything, what but we're, what I, but, we're, but what I, we're I, seeing is Eric, the opening I, up of a two-front I, conflict. That's right. I didn't privilege Europe in, in, in my understanding of the shift. I, I started, if you remember, with the Philippines and South Korea right. and but, Russia but and even China. The, but, so, but Tony, so even in the Philippines I, so I and think, South Korea, you don't necessarily see a qualitative shift. For instance, in South Korea, it just came out in the New York Times two days ago that, uh, that Trump is already walking back the promise to make the South Koreans defend themselves. And there was a huge sigh of relief 
from the ruling establishment in South Korea, that they're going to be able to continue to count on U.S. military support. So even within the first week after the election, you already see the imperial footprint continuing to maintain its, uh, well, foothold, I guess. Okay. So anyway, uh, yeah. I, you know, I I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to get into a, you know, back and forth too much on yeah, the issue, yeah. other than to say that the that I I caution people about triumphalism about the so-called death of neoliberalism and the death of neoconservatism. I don't see it at all. I see it instead as merely a shape shifting of this, a, a, a movement, a shift in the political landscape, and the rats are jumping off of one ship and onto another ship, but the rats are still there, and the rats have the plague, and we need to be prepared for it. Very good. Anyway, Tony, uh, on, that poetic, on that poetic note that I just uh, extemporaneously <laughs> put together, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Despite my, despite the uh, contentious uh, nature of some parts of this conversation, it was wonderful as always. Love Tony oh, Montero, yeah. always. professor, always, uh, yes. always. Uh, professor, <laughs> expert on W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Radical Tradition, so many other subjects. Uh, follow his work on Black Agenda Report. Follow his work uh, all over the place, and especially in the city of Philadelphia. Tony Montero, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much, Eric. I very much appreciate it.